0: now as people who have been here know a book called the zelensky factor i'm sorry the zelensky effect by henry hale lexicon pointed out to me i was pronouncing the other author's last name wrong It's o- olga onuch which reminds me yet again as i've said many times that it's much easier to pronounce ukrainian when it's written in ukrainian in english it could mean anything sometimes <laughs> we are now getting to the second The second chapter last week we did a chapter called Global Hero, which set out the parameters of the book and how the sociological studies that it's based on. This chapter this week is called the Independence Generation. James, do you have something you want to say as we start?
1: Just uh, thank you for getting us started. It is a good chapter. There's a lot to it. There's a lot more history than of politics in here that we could we're gonna go through. It is fascinating and I would say related to our current conversation that the the issues that came with Russia, as it were, really a lot of the stuff really did come from Russia is something that I see you guys leaving behind, Ukrainians leaving behind as fast as possible. That accession process to the EU also asks for that, the kind of corruption that you're talking about may well happen. I do not know. I'm not I'm not going to say anything about that. What I do know from our own uh, SBU segments are, is that there is a lot of prosecution going on of people who are corrupt there i know that they're mostly taken up with the worst of the worst they may not get around to the doctors clinics in time of war as well as they should but they did address some bad doctors earlier in the war for sure they're not leaving that alone completely it is it's difficult to come from where ukraine is and to go where i know that they're going to go which is part of the eu and part of be a better and more excellent nation than they are now that's what we all strive for. Nobody is free of corruption in this world. There just isn't a person or a nation that's free of it. It's just how ha- you, you keep trimming, keep trimming.
0: I was just talking with my son about this earlier today. We live in New York City. If you want to get the housing permits, you're... Let's say some money changing hands makes it much easier. This is the issue, though. I think that Ukraine is fighting against, and to some extent, su- beginning to succeed, is making the idea of corruption dangerous. One making what people begin to feel like maybe I shouldn't do this because I might get caught. And I see what happens to people who get caught. The more that happens, and the more the SBU, you know, especially these high-profile prosecutions. Hopefully, we'll slowly start to change the attitudes. It's a long thing in New York. It took a long time, too. We, our police department used to be incredibly corrupt. And now you can't even buy a cup of coffee, which frustrates me sometimes, but at the same time, it's a step in the right direction. To, um, go.
2: Yes, in the topic of corruption, there been a story of the family that stole about $40 million from the military. Uh, I think is the name. In Ukraine, there is an, a millennial, right? I'm 37. Z-generation is much more alien to corruption. There is a story from Z-generation. If you care to follow the story, it's on Telegram from the channel Latin Peshe. It's uh, L A H E N T Y T. Send the link if anyone cares. We are fighting it. Not from the Z generation, but a millennial from 87 born. I speak English freely, so that's why I'm here with you at 3 a.m. If anyone cares, hit me up. Thank you.
0: Yes, thank you, Stan. Actually, we're discussing today, you are quite just two years younger than the generation that this is about. It's basically about your generation, what our authors call the independence generation, President Zelensky's generation, that people born between 1975 and 1985, one of the things they point out is much more likely to speak English and much more likely to speak with Ukrainian, which was interesting. Let's go, what, I'm just going to get into this a little bit, and then then we'll go from there. The, the question here, and the question that, as we discussed last time, this book is not primarily about President Zelensky as himself, but as he as a representation of his generation and of Ukrainians generally. But, so their question is, who was Zelensky before it became the Zelensky we see today? In order to, dis- to discover this they say that we need to look at the what was li- what life was like for ordinary people in newly independent Ukraine, which is a setting for the childhood and early adulthood of children of what they call the independence generation. The independence generation were old enough when independence came in 91 to remember the long lines and the empty shelves under the Soviets, the Chernobyl disaster, Glasnost and Perestroika, which were the which opened up the Soviet system to some extent, but also brought a lot of problems. The revolution on the granite, which was really the first demonstration on the Maidan, which many of us haven't hadn't heard of. I think these were student protests about the parliamentary elections of 1990, where that the Communist Party. It they had the Communist Party winning, although people had serious doubts about whether they had actually won. There was this was all unrest, worker strikes, and that the human chain from Lviv to Kiev that you may have seen. These were all show. These are all important incidents of. Activism and and solidarity among ordinary Ukrainians that led up to the independence referendum in August twenty fourth, nineteen ninety one. That was that was independence at that point. This generation is now in their thirties and forties, the independence generation, leading the resistance to the Russian invasion. In a minute, we're going to go into into the tradition of dissidence and satire that Zelensky was a part of.
2: If uh, you care about. Uh, to hear how it was uh, from the independence. So I'm born in... I've been as a student with the first revolution that I remember, the Orange Revolution. Uh, I am in the western part of Ukraine, okay? Ivana-Frankivsk. That's near Lviv Uh, or... for those who are lazy. Essentially I remember how in the first revolution, this is actually fun, because in the first levo- revolution, the orange rev- revolution, in, in the video where The egg was thrown to Yanukovych. If anyone cares, I can send you the video and circle myself in that video. Whatever. I was going to the uh, lectures on that day, and i saw that something's happening and i
0: i'm back i'm sorry i got distracted i just got a message in my text messages saying from donald trump are you going to vote for me i was just sending him a venomous reply but i'll finish that later <laughs> anyway thank you stan well, okay we're going to as i said and i'm going to try to get through the next couple of the next uh, couple of sections because we just want to lay the we want to lay the scene for what we're talking about. Vladimir Zelensky was born January 25th, 1978. This was a time of extreme political repression after the 1956 post-Stalin era of Ukrainian civic activism, the there were periods of liberalization and periods of incredible suppression it, it must have been it must have really been tough to live through all of this this was the time of the samizdat which the sam some, some in russian and a group of activist writers poets literary cre- critics and human rights activism activists just as an aside i find it fascinating how important poets have been to ukrainian independence and ukrainian the ukrainian development of nationhood it's find it really fascinating i don't think i don't think this is unusual i don't think you find this in many countries it speaks to i find i find a lot of ukrainian culture poetic in some ways maybe part of it anyway during this period of time there was a rise of what was that james
1: did you want to say something I heard. I did. I just wanted to jump in and say, maybe you're going to get to it, but samizdat is the idea of self-publishing, which, of course, in a a repressive state, that's how you do it if you want to get any readers, (laughs) because if you run it by somebody, they're going to turn you in. Anyways, that word, I just wanted to define. If you defined it, I didn't hear it, so I'm sorry. No, I didn't. I'm old
0: enough that I assumed everybody knew what it meant, but if you're younger than me, you wouldn't. Thank you very much. Samizdat is the Russian word. Sambedov is the Ukrainian word. Either way, it's this was stuff that was published under the table and handed around from one person to the other because because the authorities got a hold of it or you'd be in trouble. Thank you very much,
1: James. Now I have one more crack to make. Oh, yes. Yeah. You're going you're gonna to play Gandalf because that's what he said, too. He's like, I talk to myself. I know what I'm talking about. Doesn't everybody else kind of thing. You uh, you get that role. <laughs> I'm not Gandalf, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah
0: i do find i do find that when i talk to myself i understand myself a lot better than other people do <laughs> anyway and i need to stop talking so fast my apologies i never i always get going anyway what what was going on at this time and where zelensky connects to this was the rise of, of political satire and, and the opposition to russification um Zelensky's comedy itself—if you've ever watched any of the uh, evening Fartal on YouTube or even *Servant of the People*—a lot of really biting political criticism. Very funny, but very, very. Uh, it's not the kind of thing that that an autocratic government would want to encourage. He was on. The, he was in the forefront of some of that. What's interesting about it is the opposition to Russification and the defense of Ukrainian language was even among. Dissidents who were not opposed to communism necessarily, but they were Ukrainians and they didn't want their culture to be suppressed. What's interesting, we tend to uh, tend to think it's mostly that Russian people who who, uh, I'm sorry, I just got a message from a friend. The people who are e- you're either pro-Ukrainian language and pro-Ukraine and anti-Russian or the other way around. It turned out that it was a lot more nuanced than that, and that they were people who felt all right about. Russian culture, but they still did. They still were Ukrainians and intended to stay that way. The Ukraine, the Ukrainian Helsinki Group was founded in 1975, and one of these one of these periods of being a little bit more open. Within two years, all the founding members were in prison or in exile. After 19, 1986, after Chernobyl, um, Glasnost and Perestroika happened. Glasnost and Perestroika also maybe terms I know but you don't necessarily know if you're not an old coot like myself. Glasnost means openness and perestroika means restructuring. These were attempts by Gorbachev to basically to save the Soviet Union. It didn't work, but it did it result in more openness. This really, all the Ukrainian dissidents, who a lot of them had been sent to the Gulag, were released after 1986. Vasil Stus, who Nancy has spoke, spoken about recently, a wonderful Ukrainian poet who had been, was another Ukrainian patriot who had been in the Gulag for, I think, 10 years, that when he died in 1985, only a few short months before he probably would have been released. It's doubly heartbreaking. Um, And There really is a lot in here. (laughs) It's jam-packed. I can tell you're trying to get through the chapter. One point that I wanted to pick up on is when you say that some of the satire was directed against just the Russification part, even though it may not have been anti-socialist or Soviet or something. I can recall... Eons ago, taking Soviet government and university and learning about, or I don't know, from some point there, that there was all this talk about the Soviet creating the new Soviet man or person, what have you. In reality, these critics would point out that yeah, it was there was no no nationality, and that nationality was Russian. So that whatever was Soviet really was, when we do the triple line equal line. Is and is only Russian. the line was eradicating all these nationalities, Ukrainian, but in other other Soviet republics as well. In reality, everything was eradicated to the uh, and became Russian, and that kind of thing was pointed out all over the place. Then uh, the dissidents that you mentioned. One of the things that. Um, Onuch says, "Is that the names of them? Their birthplaces read like a map of Ukraine." she lists various provinces and cities that they came from east to west of the country i thought that was really important i was doing the math too some of these people i would say they spent from 3 to 8 years in prison more or less and it's absolutely incredible of the big names they actually i just was calculating all the way through that paragraph on page 43 that within 2 years they've all been arrested or had to flee the country and handed these long sentences. Then by the time you get into the mid-80s, of the 37 big names, 33 of them are in prison or in exile. This is really heavy repression. That's all. Absolutely. It was a really hard time. It's a testament to the Ukrainian spirit that all of these Dissidents got out of prison and immediately went to work pushing for Ukrainian independence. They it it and as as, as Lexgon said, it's very important to to realize that. The push for independence and the dissidents were not limited to Kyiv and Lviv, because we tend to think of it that it was a Western Ukrainian phenomenon and people in the East were all happy to be part of the Soviet Union. That was not the case at all. The authors of this book show us that convincingly with hard statistics. This is one of the things about this book that I really enjoy very much is the fact that the that all of this stuff is backed by voluminous research. If you don't have the book itself, what is it? It must be like the last hundred pages are all our notes and charts and everything? You can see exactly where they got all where the, how they came to these
1: conclusions, which I think is very important. These the yeah and the set of figures that they have the two point one map depicting regions where dissident leaders were born, and it just is so instructive about where they really came from and the border. And land mostly, but not exclusively. Very interesting. All of these are fantastic, informative graphs. If you don't have the book and you do want to learn more about what things were really like back then, at least collectively, as far as statistics can help, that these are excellent. Yes, absolutely.
0: I'm sorry. I'm getting. I've gotten some bad news from a friend who's having to put a pet down, which she was
1: very close to. Yes. We were talking about the dissidents, and uh, this this was something that I wanted to look, know more about because I knew of some of the dissidents. This was uh, this was fortuitous for me to read the tradition. we we are right in the second section still. This part this is a lot about how Zelensky uses some of the language from this too, unless I'm getting my parts mixed up. Honestly, I've had a hard time getting in the time to read this. Yeah, anyway, he uses a lot of the speech, speeches and words from dissidents in the history of Ukraine. And they're very powerful when he uses them. He really is being and projecting the Ukrainian part of that. It it really works for him. I let's see. I am not going to dig for it right now because there's so many. There are so many good quotes in here, and I want to read them all, but it is too much to do. Lexicon. What did you think of this section?
0: I did want to bring in a yeah. We were on. We were talking about the repression, and then later on in this section, I think Anuk has done a lot of research in this area. One of the things that on at the bottom page 43, she talks about the. She wants to stress that. The uh, the cultural dissidents were strongly supporting industrial workers and in their labor. There were major labor strikes, a lot of them from Zelensky's area, which Dnipro is uh, uh, and his province right on the Dnipro River. And uh, Kriviri, uh, industrial, it was one of these closed cities, rocket city. Closed meant there are a lot of cities like this. Tomsk is a big city in Russia. You'd know the name of Krasnoyarsk. I spent a summer in Siberia. There were, I, I would say, scores or hundreds of such cities because they were producing rocketry, nuclear stuff, weaponry, whatever, were important in industry as well as intelligence around the intellectual innovation, that kind of thing, the tech technology, they were closed cities, meaning to say you didn't freely move in and out of these and the people that lived there stayed there, just in case people don't know what a closed city was in the Soviet system. Anyway, there were a lot of labor action that went on in Zelensky's hometown and province. Oblast. They mentioned she. If you look at the footnotes, Onuk has actually written major papers, if not a book, on this uh, on labor unrest and the support by the cultural dissidents. They supported the workers in these strikes, like of the five largest ones in the 20 years leading up to independence. Imagine this is strikes going on before the Soviet system comes down. Three of the five largest ones took place in that uh, Dnipro area. By the same token, whether it's mentioned here, you see it a few places, the workers also support the political actions that cultural, intellectual kind of students types launch. It's their parents, their uncles and aunties, workers who come out and support them. that's true right up into and through uh, Maidan 2014. 1314. I thought it was really important because various writers, what I came across preparing this chapter is uh, a number of articles from earlier people who if they who now are full pin supporting the of course as they should be supporting Ukraine but they sure talked a lot of different tunes in the in an, an earlier time and didn't have a lot of hope that zelensky would get anywhere let alone ukraine as a whole but um I just so some of them, some writers want to paint everything done in political movements as the activities only of intellectuals or some kind of cultural elite or, as Robin said, the West or something. In fact, what she and Hale are building up is a picture of a country that's had a lot of civic activism and And we get we learn in this chapter quite specifically who tried. Maybe it's in the section I'm going to deal with shortly, but who attempted to play the ethnic card, the ethno-linguistic card. In fact, it wasn't every, but it was not the major current. Those were departures from, I think, the spirit of these political and civic actions and labor actions. Yes, absolutely. That's a hundred percent. I just wanted. We're going to get. We're getting to growing up in the wild east, page forty-five. And Lexicon's going to handle it in just a second. I just wanted to add, just a couple of little things to finish out the previous section. We. She talked about the closed cities. Another one was a uh, Nippon. Never say that. Nippon. Um, which is was a big the center of rocket production in, in, in the Soviet Union. It was also the said because there was a lot of money there, money and political power. It became a center of po- both political and criminal networks which tended to overlap. People who got their start there were Leonid Kuchma, who was the second president of Ukraine, Yulia Tymoshenko, who was prime minister, I believe under under oh, what's his name under, Yadiko, uh, under um, Ihor Kolomoysky, who later owned One Plus One, the uh, media, was the, I guess he was the head of the Dnipopytos of Oblast for a while, too. Very prominent uh, oligarch. And Viktor Pinchuk. Who, who is now a big supporter of, of Ukrainian cultural projects, which is interesting. It shows that being an oligarch with lots of money isn't only a bad thing sometimes. But any, anyway, military manufacture, all of that was in that area, which is in the oblast that where Kvivuri is, where uh, President Zelensky grew up. That uh, section of the chapter starts at the bottom, page 45, asking what did it mean to grow up as part of the independence generation. We're talking about growing up in the 1990s in Ukraine. People who know something about Russia know that the Russian people talk about these 1990s as a chaotic time. Of course, that laid them open to somebody like Putin coming along, being a strong man and bringing order. In Ukraine as well, and perhaps a lot of the post-Soviet space, the 1990s may have been a disorderly time as countries try to find a path out of a sort of centrally controlled co- or commandy cuz they call it in the jargon the period immediately uh, after the ussr's demise i'm just quoting i'm just reading here from it over the page was it extreme was extremely difficult for ordinary ukrainians the country was poor and it was poorer than people had expected there had been widespread hopes that ukraine would quickly rise to western european levels once communist exploitation ended very quickly those widespread hopes were dashed. That's the end of my quote. I just read the parts of the first paragraph. People, people's belief that communism had stultified all these economies and therefore things would work once communism was gone. I just wanted to do a short aside. I'm not sure if people are familiar with why that happened so widely and certainly in Ukraine. I think basically what's happening is you get, you suddenly, especially under sort of IMF and World Bank influence, this Ukraine as well as Russia sold off the assets, I call it a fire sale of the state assets, to whoever could buy, as we see here, people who had money to buy were, of course, those who had already accumulated some kind of influence and and capital, some finance. At the same time, you get what economists call something like the fiscal crunch of the post-Soviet states. You've got a command economy where the whole network, the market, is predetermined so that the supply of your inputs is... Uh, is organized and is certain. You can count on it. The market for what you produce, your outputs, is assured. Moldova was a country hit terribly badly by this, went from being one of the wealthiest areas. Ukraine also, one of the wealthiest parts of the Soviet Union, became, both of them became the two poorest. So not only that, the fiscal crunch is that although Soviet economists pretended there was no tax. In reality, all of the state enterprises turned over funds to the state, and that was state revenue. All of a sudden, this is gone. But at the same time, there is no tax-paying culture in the country. Nobody's paying taxes. The poor people aren't paying because they evade, and there's no real, really established tax collection system, and the rich don't pay because they get around it. I agree with Robin, it's most edifying to watch servant of the people. No, I don't get anything out of it, but just for your information, it's on Netflix. I found that series was so informative that I finished it and I just went back to the beginning and started over again. I got, I have a lot of feelings about it. I found it extremely depressing, but at the same time, I think that from where I sit, I don't know if there's anything that's given me, it's farce, but I don't know if there's anything that's given me a more realistic appreciation of how hard task is before the Ukrainian people and their governments, whatever government, and has put more in center place. There's a war going on at the same time this struggle against corruption is so central and uh, that series makes that uh, puts corruption in central place. It makes it really clear that although the corruption doesn't the corruption the series doesn't discuss the war, but you can see that the war cannot be won without defeating this uh, awful sickness that can plague an economy and, and a society. I think maybe Ukraine odd paradoxically because of the war may have more chance of moving more quickly than a lot of other countries because I can't really feel that a lot of post-soviet countries are free of this corruption. I think Ukraine's has simply been put under a spotlight. I don't know if somebody wants to come back at this point James Earp, or others
1: right here i think you're i think you are correct that this is a problem that is getting solved but it was a big problem and it but it's going to be something they're going to have for a long time especially with really embedded interest being mixed with what was, at the time, they saw growth in crime, the murder rate went up, and then with the horrible inflation at that time, and it was very bad, there was just a lot of people hanging on to whatever they could. I think that the that this whole thing about corruption and, around, and especially the Wild East, There's still many challenges, but I don't see how you get out of it without just fighting. Hopefully, they win this, and you're right. It will probably go more quickly now that they're engaged. They really are in a shooting battle with some of these gangs as well. They haven't stopped working. We heard the other day that some of the SBU um, did get shot. This is a real war even for them. We call it policing, but in wartime, it feels a lot more like war especially
0: since these oligarchs are surrounded by by well uh, well uh, armed guards it's a cr- they're criminal networks really let's go to vincent and then we have a little more on this go ahead vincent
3: regarding the corruption a good example is georgia because they really managed to clean this up this like day to day corruption i had this conversation over and over again with ukrainians what they think how it will develop and like whether the war helps in the reform efforts one thing many are saying, let's not forget about it, that's a sad truth, Was going on since 2014, we are seeing since then a problem with corruption reforms and changing the society. It is changing, but it's changing slowly. One main argument I heard over and over again is that it's a culture issue. Because, again, I'm not Ukrainian. I wasn't raised there. I only lived there for like temporary times, not long enough to really have a good idea of the country. For example, if we talk about normal people, it's very normal to pay the driver instructor to get your driver license faster. It's also not unusual to pay for a recipe if you want to have medicine. I know of students who paid for their master thesis and so forward. If you have normal society acting in this like basic corruption things which doesn't really hurt society as a whole obviously these people then if they see like corrupt politicians or army officials also forward they're in a position where they are saying we're doing the same on a smaller level so can we really blame them if they have the opportunity wouldn't would i do the same in this opportunity That's really, it's really a cultural problem. And I know it's changing, especially in the young generation. Yeah, this will take some time when it comes to reforms in the war. The problem is that within the ministries and within the armies, you have vast parts which are corrupt. And Zelensky's team knows about it and they are changing it slowly. At the same time, there's only so much you can do doing a war and changing a system because if you cut out too much parts of the system isn't functioning anymore it's with this really balancing act of like slowly pushing the wrong players out while at the same time you can't do it overnight i commend them for everything they are doing right now in this tricky situation but it will take a lot of time sadly
0: Thank you, Vincent. That's a very important point you're making too. These uh, corrupt networks. One of the reasons they're there is because they do work. It's not what how Ukraine wants things to work going forward, but you can't just dismantle those networks without having something to put in place to replace. It. So that's a very good, uh, a very good point. I just want to quickly go over about. Vexikon mentioned this about about the the ethnic card in 1994. Kravchuk, uh, loses to... Kravchuk was the first president. He lost to uh, Leonid Kuchma, uh, who was uh, was a, was thought to be a reformer. He was from the east. He ran the largest missile factory in Dnipropetrovsk. Uh, Kravchuk tried to beat him by playing the ethnic card, saying that Kuchma was an Eastern Russophone. Um, he wasn't a real Ukrainian. Kuchma, it turns out, spoke perfectly good Ukrainian. He he said, I think it was in a speech, that he was going to be a president for all Ukrainians and urged the voters not to fall for Kravchuk, dividing the country to decide to save his career. This is the first example of, of how often and. Russia tries to trot this out, too, against Ukraine, to try to divide the country by language. It, it's really heartening to see how little this seems to resonate. As we have pointed out elsewhere in the book, there are extremes on the extreme left and extreme right, or the extreme Ukrainian and extreme Rush, Russophone. But most of the population... They speak both languages that's used. Even on the Maidan, people spoke Russian to each other and spoke Ukrainian. It's, this is just not an issue for most Ukrainians, and it's really nice to see how often this doesn't work. This was the first peaceful transition of power this election, and unfortunately, it got overshadowed by this attempt to divide The country, which did have an effect of creating some divisions. Anyway, Lauren will be into the next section, but let's go. Oh, hi.
4: I could wait to. I just wanted to speak about a little bit about the corruption. Anything I say I found on Twitter, it's not about, it's not from the new book that that just came out, just so you know, not giving anything away. One thing that came out during uh, Zelensky's presidency is he had to declare his income, as most presidents do. It was found that he had also put his money in an offshore account so he could escape taxes. He was embarrassed to be caught. Zelensky went to save Ukraine also in, in the war. Before that, he saw all kinds of corruption and he wanted to reformulate the system. And even him, even him, he followed the system because that's what you did. If you wanted to put your money in a safe place, you got it out of Ukraine. Even honest people, that's just what you did to save yourself. I think I'm
0: mean, in, in, in his defense I think this was a legal loophole that a lot of people use. It wasn't that he was being corrupt. He was doing what what is coming. It's in this country too. It's all over the world. People do try to shelter their money from taxes legally as much as they can. Yeah. There was just they just released his his report for his yearly financial report, which everyone in government in Ukraine has to release. The man is not making a lot of money. His net worth is not so high anymore. His income is down like a, Two-thirds I think yeah and he, it's yep yeah, it. it's good to do it, Alexa. Go. you are ahead of me but it's fine. I just had wanted to bring out one point from back on page 47 just a really important event in 1998 because it's striking uh, striking how much we've never heard of it. We're talking about independent Ukraine 1998. there's a big strike of uh, miners. This where in Donbass and they march on Kiev, that's a long way. They gain support from a broad swath of Ukrainian society or sway that they say in England because particularly when the Berkut, which is a term you've heard if you watched Maidan, the Berkut were the special forces they were uh, at the beck and call of the president. They, there was a crackdown in Luhansk which is a part of Donbass. There also was very famously and I can faintly even remember a local miner named uh, Mikhailovich uh, burned himself to death a self-immolation. There was huge support for this strike. Now, if you've ever heard of it, raise your hand. Fifty bucks to you. It's just uh, nobody talks about this kind of stuff. What I find about the book is that more than any other one we've talked about, it gives us an impression that there was th- this is a spirited society that speaks up about injustice, and it runs right through the history and the modern history. So I just hadn't wanted to let that go by we but that's the author's mentioned that in 2017 years later two years, a year before Zelensky makes a decision to run for office, again, there is there, there are some major, three major enterprises in iron and steel also have big um, labor actions. The authors ask the question, might that have been something that nudged him towards getting into politics? That's discussed later on, but uh, maybe it's one of James's stirring quotes. It's one that they draw from. From the first season of this series, do you think where uh, the president is asking, do you think it's acceptable to eat sandwiches with red caviar in the parliamentary cafeteria for 12 hryvnia when a senior citizen collects pennies to buy a carton of milk. I remember even in Canada, we used to go up to Parliament and eat in there in the Parliamentarians' Café. We couldn't believe the prices. This seems to be a kind of a mainstay of all kinds of governments. I don't know, for some reason they have subsidized cafes for government staff on some misguided, antiquated belief that this helps representatives of the people go to Congress by way of nothing. We can go up to, oh yeah, the other thing I didn't want to leave behind is a demographic, a, what do we call this, ticking clock, a, a ticking demographic clock for Ukraine. As soon as independence occurs, and they are talking about this on page 48, we see a lot of migration. In fact, I don't think they these authors treat it fully, but I did look a bit more into it. Even just you look at Ukraine's population on Wikipedia, there was a lot of movement among the, the Soviet republics right after independence. A lot of people coming home to places they were kicked out of. But a lot of people, and so many people came to Ukraine, a lot of, and some diaspora come home, but a lot of Ukrainians move abroad. There probably is a net fall in the decade. I just wanted to say that uh, Russia has been responsible for a huge demographic hit to the country. And uh, we can talk about it later on. But uh, the population has since then has declined by the pressures of poverty, and then eventually the war. Then I'm up to where you were, Robin. And uh, I think that uh, I just finally really appreciate your making the point that uh, (laughs) the way they say the divide, talking about... Kuchma's, uh, well, Kravchuk's att- attempt to stay in power when he's challenged by his own prime minister, Kuchma, and he plays that ethnic card. And uh, as the authors say on page 50, the divided Ukraine narrative was cast. All kinds of people would reach for this in the future from that point on as a tool for winning votes or manipulating people by creating a fear in them that uh, somehow some of their rights would be taken away if they weren't the right ethnicity, i.e. Ukrainian or Russian-speaking. The not the fix, but the division is in, and I have heard this quoted to me by Russophile so much, Ukraine is a deeply divided country, they intone. And I think it's very good the way this book treats that, shows that whenever it happens, it's used by an unprincipled loser essentially, time and time again. I'll just take a pause. Maybe somebody might want to speak, and I'll just see if I have any real salient. Yes, I do have a couple I'll come back to, but let's go to Vincent, maybe?
3: Regarding the Parliament cafeteria, in Germany we have currywurst. It's very subsidized and cheap to eat there. Talking about Ukraine and the Parliament, there we see another systematic arrow, which we have there, which we can also see in the U.S., As better than me to run for Congress in the US, you need to have a lot of financial support for your campaign. In Ukraine, they face a similar issue, especially in the last 10, 15 years, that parliamentarians are paid very bad. Like for Ukrainian standards, I think it's something around $1,000 per month, a little bit more, a little bit less, which is enough to survive, especially in Kiev. Um, That's nothing that buys, gets you a good life. This leads to a fact that you have people in parliament, you have a g- lot of great parliamentarians, but you have like three groups. Either you have people who are already coming from money, being they have their own businesses or come from wealthy families so they can afford to be a politician. Or you have people who are very committed and are saying, OK, we can live on this kind of money, even though we would earn much more in the private sector or abroad. Or, and that's the third class, they are slowly getting pushed out, but they are still there, are people who go into politics to take advance of the system. Because, again, like with such a small salary, you, some people get creative. And I know stories of parliamentarians who use additional funds, which are supposed to pay for their staff. They put it into their own pocket, and then the staff are like a lot of unpaid interns. So yeah, this like thing affording parliament and like affording being politicians, especially in Ukraine, it's still a huge problem, which hopefully will be changed after the war. Because right now, obviously, you can't raise the salaries of parliamentarians. Doing
0: I just wanted to say that the chapter in this we're looking at the 1990s. A final point, maybe that the section makes is not to forget the Budapest Memorandum that takes place that is signed at this time, 1994, the very end of 94, when Ukraine agrees to give up its nuclear arms. A the, the memorandum, note the word is signed by Ukraine and the U.S., the U.K., and Russia. It is not a treaty in any way. There are no guarantees or concrete obligations, although there's a statement that these parties will all guarantee, will all assure Ukraine's independence. In fact, there's no kind of implementation mechanism. There's no statement of how this Ukraine's sovereignty and independence will be assured. And that takes place at the population of <coughs> The government is certainly bullied into this memorandum by the big powers, but the population is not particularly concerned with it. No one is and the government is not particularly thinking about wishing to wage nuclear war. The Ukrainian government we know from the very day of independence the Russian Duma begins making statements about the conditions under which they really do agree with uh, Ukraine's independence and sovereignty more of which would come up later just to mention it here so that i think that government i think that Ukrainian government was pushed into it by the great powers it had to be pushed because i think Ukrainian governments were immediately and constantly aware of Russia's pressure on them, these kinds of conditions that were constantly being raised in the Duma or by some statement or remark or essay that came out. At any rate, a final point in the section is that both local criminal networks who collude with political bosses together create opportunities for local political and economic barriers to arise up. Space is made. And you have this, I think, in a lot of countries. As the state assets get sold off, get into private hands, accumulate into few hands, that crime and big business go together to create influence, or, if not control, Over politics, at a very from top to from bottom to top, a really serious issue, and I think Robin or James is going to take on this section about the oligarchs. I'll leave it to you guys.
1: I'll be happy to. I did want to add one one more thing, and that is that just that about gangs and oligarchs and corruption, that Lansky does address some. This somewhat in this lovely quote, I think, which reminds me of something he said more recently. He says, I am grateful to all the critics of the law. Your remarks are valuable. You have been working with oligarchs for many years, either for oligarchs or under oligarchs. And therefore, you clearly understand all the shortcomings of the law being, as they say, deep in the material. Now there's a lot of sarcasm in that. That's so cool. Who he knows, he knows they're corrupt, and he deals with it. He's been great about this. I will just say at the very end of this section, there is
2: that.
1: There is his. They mentioned his insistence that to move toward the EU means to really change your values and your cultures, because it is a set of values that you're getting. He runs through, actually, it very well echoed something that Stan said about maternity wards. It starts in the maternity wards. they not paying not paying taxes, taking bribes, getting bribes, paying bribes, whatever. Kids then grow up that way. Zelensky doesn't blame anybody. He says, we ourselves are guilty. People like you, people like me. And this is the fictional one, sorry. That is the Holo Borod, uh, the character in Servant of the People. So anyways, I just thought that that was another useful addition to this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The next... Oh, I just wanted to throw one thing in talking about this linguistic divide and the attempt to uh, to divide the country. The latest time this was tried was Poroshenko tried to smear Zelensky as a pro-Russian... Uh, Russophone from the east, who would not who would not represent real Ukrainians. I hope this has put some of this to bed because Zelensky won with over seventy five percent of the vote. Obviously, this argument really fell flat. I think as the war has gone on, people have the country has really pulled together, regardless of language, so I'm hoping that this is will be getting to the end of this. The Russians have tried to play this up, too, to absolutely no effect. James, do you want to do the Rise of the
1: Oligarchs? I'd be happy to. This really does go very much around the privatization of the state goods. I'd say it was a mad scramble to see who could get there first. The mafia was in on that, and they gobbled up everything that they could pretty quickly the in uh, zelensky's home region the, the petrovsk uh, all of the major gas oil metal metallurgy coal and other heavy industry assets in ukraine as well as agribusiness and banking sectors were privatized if you think about the percentage of what that is in that area that's a huge percentage of the wealth in the area so these people were using their patronal groups to do this too. They were, some of them must have been working with criminal organizations and uh, things got pretty dicey in that area. They're not safe. This was not unique to that region, however. This was something that was happening across Ukraine. And it really was that that patronal, I'm still wanting to just say patronage, but patronal power and the crime combined to form the, these oligarchs. They wanted especially to have political power, and they were ready to figure out how to do that. There was more on that later. The The series of Servant of the People is discussion between a couple oligarchs whose faces aren't shown. This is how it goes. This, in fact, opens the whole series. I'm just going to run through these oligarch one. Friends, we didn't gather here for the scenic view, oligarch two. Gentlemen, aren't you tired of pointlessly wasting money? First, we spend millions to bring our candidates to the political for our f- forefront, and then we spend twice as much to ruin our competitors, oligarch one. Those are the rules. Do you want to install your own president? Then back him, o- oligarch two. Let's be honest with each other for once. This is a classic example where the whole system has been seized in a certain sense, There isn't much democracy really going on. We've seen that in Russia where they've had this problem. They do still have elections, but... Putin may lo- or win by less than 93% of the vote at this point, or maybe less than 95% because of how the war's gone. Just as an example of another system, that's completely rigged. At least the counting in Ukraine apparently is accurate, the kind of pressure that are put on candidates and really did deny them full, full ownership of their own country. Then... <clears throat> Excuse me. I guess I guess I don't really want to go into it that much more. You guys can pick up where you like in that. I just wanted to this one's one small, not
0: small, minor thing in this in the global scope. But it's an interesting distinction between what happened in Russia and what happened in Ukraine, because the same privatization business happened in both places. In Russia, it's what they call a kleptocracy. Putin was at the top and and. His it's all of his loyalists, it's the Corleone family, right? And he's the mob boss, and it's all coordinated in Ukraine. However, it was a bunch of different people who had either family or communist party connections, black market, criminal, whatever. They many different people took over areas. Yulia Chimoshenko, who was later prime minister, was became the what they called the gas princess. Uh, Ihor Kolomotsky, uh, Privat Bank, the media. Ah, uh, was the Ihor Pinchuk, I think, had an energy business. Poroshenko had a cocoa business. Poroshenko was the chocolate king. What all this amounted to, and why it's important to make the distinction is that these oligarchs competed against each other in an odd way. As corrupt as everything was, the elections tended to be a little more independent because they were fighting each other. They didn't—they didn't arrange to have the, their a candidate they all chose when the ninety-five percent of the vote like happens in Russia. Oddly enough, although the although there was a lot of nonsense going on during the electoral campaigns with different media outlets pushing one candidate another because they're owned by oligarch X or oligarch Y, the actual elections were pretty open and honest. I mean, they were not vote stealing and that kind of thing. It's it, Ukraine was, even in this, as corrupt as the system was at that point, they were in a better place than Russia because one person or one organization wasn't able to completely monopolize everything. Back to lexicon a little bit, Vincent. I think that. In the, what goes on in Russia in the chaotic 90s is a whole lot of oligarchs. There were quite a big number owning Russia's a vast country. And you look at the oil industry alone and then every other part of the material and financial well-being of the population. That chaos was frustrating to the population. I think Putin's claim to fame was that he came in and supposedly cleaned it up. What he did was clean out all those that wouldn't hand over his take and people talk him about him as the 50 percenter those that wouldn't give the full half to putin got destroyed karamursa for no you use y- yukos oil yeah oh we're talking to i know one of the case um i can't think of
3: either i know kodr
0: Khodorkovsky was once the richest man in Russia, rich among a lot of rich men. But he got that, put a target on his back and Putin did him in, put him in jail for 20 years. He didn't get out till the Sochi Olympics in 2014 and had to, of course, has left the country. Exile was part of the price. And I think that what we've been reading here in Ukraine is that Rather than some Putin figure showing up and cleaning up the dawns and retaining only the ones loyal to him. We continue to have dueling, maybe a trio, as in the series or whatever, a small number of super oligarchs. They're still around, but you've got an active civil society. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to stress that big movement in 1998 that was all classes of the population, even though we hadn't heard of it. Then you get the movements later on that go on. 2001, 2004, 2010. What's saving Ukraine, a critical, huge difference is the people, is the population being far more politically savvy and having a much higher bar for their own dignity. There's just injustice that a level of injustice that will not be tolerated. I think that this book helps us, uh, raises that idea of a point of pride, of a dignity of a people, that time again, if the big guys don't get it, then the population stands up and makes it clear to them again and again. If we were to take the series as, as art imitating life, it takes a few rounds before there begins to be a serious, a serious coming to grips with the corruption and the oligarchy problem. It's in series one, it looks tough, but they appear to get a handle on it. Then as we see in series two and three, it's a lot more difficult than it appears. Maybe that's what we're living through right now in Ukraine. Thank you. Vincent, over to you.
3: I completely agree with what you said, Robin. There's also a point I wanted to mention, this Ukrainian oligarchy paradox on. So if we look at Russia, all oligarchs only exist by Putin's grace. Their money is his money. Their assets are his assets. when he took over power, he basically got all oligarchs together and said, Hey, you can do your little business deals, but you stay out of politics. Then one guy Mikhail tried to go into politics, tried to be anti-Putin. What happened, as you said, he was jailed and pushed out. This happened to many others. It's really centralized around him. In Ukraine, on the other hand, you have these very many different players who, I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing, it's a good thing that over the last 20 years, they competed with each other constantly with their own candidate. They all have their own media networks which kind of led to a democratic process, more or less, because it guarantees that no political candidate and no oligarch maintained a monopoly in the political landscape. At the same time, which I find truly fascinating, is if we look at Zelensky, because, as I mean, you mentioned the servant of the people, the servant of the people was financed and produced by the media network of Kolomolsky. He was a good friend of Zelensky. They were very close. One might say, okay, you have this rich oligarch basically enabling Zelensky to start his political career, basically building help Zelensky, building him up. For sure, this guy now controls Zelensky, right? No, something else happened. Kolomolsky tried to get control over Zelensky after he became president tried to leverage him in some ways. What did we see? We see Zelensky and the anti-corruption office very aggressively going after Kodomolsky, basically saying in public, hey, my friend, you can't do this with me. It's good that you supported me. I'm grateful for that. But now I'm responsible for the country and I'm not your personal puppet. What happened? He lost a lot of things. He had to pay a big fine. And he found out that, hey, just because I help this guy, apparently I don't control him. This is something which kind of shows this like very complicated, interesting system in Ukraine of like people helping each other, people helping politicians, and so forward. The last point I would like to make is when we see right now what oligarchs are doing is that they are very careful when it comes to internal politics, especially after Zelensky was elected, because Zelensky basically publicly. Not destroying, but attacking his former helper and friend showed all other oligarchs, okay, we need to be careful. We can't move that aggressively in internal politics. Therefore, we now see something where most of them are doing like charity stuff, doing their own foundation and projects, but are very careful when it comes to influencing internal politics.
0: Thank you very much, Vincent. That's well put. And it it definitely, it definitely. uh... It's a very different setup than what goes on in Russia. It's a good thing. I think Ukraine is going to be able to get out under this much with with the right leader who they have right now. Lex- I think uh, in the relationship between uh, Zelensky and uh, Cholomoisky, um, it, Onuk and Hale uh, indicate that the relationship was a little more arm's length and... Uh, that Kolomoisky did come in as an owner of one of the TV channels that eventually aired this series. I think that uh, Zelensky's group, Vartel 95, uh, had become a money-making venture well before his association with Channel 1 Plus 1. He was with a different channel and a couple of others before and since. The political skits, the Studio Quartal 95, played on another channel. And uh, this, in fact, the money made by him, uh, Zelensky and others came from, of course, uh, this or uh, this RT Our- talent was bought was of interest to a channel because it was a revenue generating activity. I think that, and yes, of course there were huge suspicions. I read somebody for example, one of the guys, one of the writers who's cited here in a few references, Alexander Motel, who's a prophet, Rutgers in the US. Is that in New Jersey or somewhere? (laughs) You Canadian, (laughs) yes it is. (laughs) I don't know. Motel is, you know, he's gung-ho today, but I'm I say, I, like, because I was friends with him on Facebook for years, I'm starting one, my dad and stuff, so I knew of his opinions. This, he, anyway, he looked very disparagingly on Zelensky. I came across an article, an opinion that he wrote between the first and second runoffs of the, Zelensky's election. He is absolutely attempting to uh, throw a lot of cold water on this candidacy, although I think that Zelensky he was well out ahead in round one. He just, he you, he talks about the fact that the whole series is in Russian, he talks about Zelensky coming from the east, he talks about him totally being essentially in the hands of Kolomoisky, he uses all of those cards. I think that Motil is not a very good predictor of things, and he sure as hell he has it dead wrong. He disparages the show because it doesn't talk about the war. If you look at the comic skits, they definitely do talk about about occupation. There's an entire series on there's one that's in English that's available. You can you just I think you can get yeah you go in on YouTube and look for Studio Kvartel ninety five or studio ninety five I think it's that way. You gotta get the three words in order studio Kvartal ninety five to search them on YouTube. Actually just put servant of the people that's easier. That's to get the series to get the skits on YouTube. The Servant of the People's on Netflix. I'm think. Ah, i sorry, you're right. Is that right? I tried. So then if the titles, sometimes you can get a series of them and just play them one after another. If the titles are in English, you will have English subtitles. You get, for example, an entire propagandist, a Russian TV propagandist. The whole skit is almost, I don't know, 40 minutes long. It's definitely about occupation and about Donbass. The only thing on the news that they can ever say the word Ukraine is uh, Nazi right sector. Um, but Mothill, for heaven's sake, back at the beginning of the war, was ready to say maybe Ukraine should just give up on the Donbass because it's going to be a hopeless area to ever integrate. He'd be very embarrassed to have that. <laughs> raised again today, at any rate, there are an awful lot of naysayers at the beginning of this this full-scale war and at the beginning of Zelensky's presidency, for sure. We know that his his political standing had declined as every president's had by that time, but it looks like he was doing relatively well compared to others. I'm taking us away from the sequencing in the book, but just wanted to say that I don't think there's a one-to-one chorus correspondence between what channel this group was playing on and what kind of let's say relationship they had with the with the produce the funders of the network. The relationship with the network and editorial content control, that kind of thing. That maybe in his case there was a little more autonomy or certainly as you rightly pointed out, Vincent, he appeared to have it clearly in the past two years.
3: I I don't say that Kolomolsky sat there and wrote the entire script and the whole platform on which Zelensky ran, which was also basically, hey, what is Poroshenko doing? I'm one of yours and I will turn this country around. I'm saying that it's an open secret and it's been rightly discussed, especially in Ukraine, that back then Zelensky was Kolomolsky's candidate. I'm not saying that he controlled him, but I'm saying this is the candidate, Kolomolsky, supported on a large scale both through the show obviously they had autonomy but also through other channels they met several times and so forward this is and i think that's a positive thing for Zelensky looking now at this because you can see this weird relationship where you have this oligarch believing okay this is my guy i will help him get the presidency, and now he is president. And now I have all these influence in Kiev and our over the political system. Then, and I talked to, with a Ukrainian professor about this one time to understand it, because Ukrainian, and he told that he misread Zelensky, that Kolomolsky thought, wow, there's this guy who will be incredibly grateful for me, and I have now all the control over him, and so forward. Guess what? As we can see, it turns out that Zelensky didn't want to play this game. That Zelensky said, no, I'm now democratic elected. Like, you can, sorry for my French, but you can fuck off. Like, you can you can try to threaten me or whatever. I'm independent. You don't control me. He made it very clear that Kolomolsky understand it. I think he very well understands this by now. I think this is a beautiful example of seeing this um, democratic Ukraine in play. Yes. Um, We shouldn't jump on the Russian conspiracy bandwagon in terms of Zelensky's control or whatever, and corruption. I think we should make the case, obviously, there's been a relationship to this oligarch. This was the candidate this oligarch supported the most. But at the end of the day, democracy prevailed, and this oligarch now has basically no saying whatsoever when it comes to Zelensky's politics.
0: Absolutely. I think one of the things that, that... At the beginning of the war, none of us, including prominent professors in this area, they did, all of us accepted some of the Russian narrative of this without uh, realizing it, for example, that idea that the Donbass could never be returned to Ukraine because it has it had gone over to being Russian uh, Russian loyalists, it turned out as we read, I was that in this book or the last one that that uh, Igor Girkin when they he was he came into the Donbas and he thought he would get all these local Ukrainians who would join his military enforcement mechanism. He said something about the fact that he couldn't even find a thousand. So the narrative that the Russians were putting. Out yeah, was about all these people, all these Ukrainians who really wanted to be Russian, but the facts on the ground showed that wasn't the case. I think also the business of Kolomoysky, obviously they had a relationship, it Was is it Kolomoysky, right? They had a relationship, but it was certainly not the kind of relationship the Russians are trying to to, uh, to smear him with, probably too. I think uh, I certainly have found with a lot of people I know who a lot now, I don't know that many people I know at the beginning of the war who were very negative about, about President Zelensky have grudgingly come to appreciate him and to understand that he really was a higher quality individual than they ever gave him credit for. That That is a good thing. We are now to the, the independence generation Comes of age, which I think, Lexicon, you were going to uh, lead this portion, correct? sure i think the important thing is that we've got these young people who's you know who were born just they were little children when ukraine became independent so what the authors are saying we're at the bottom of page 55 where the section starts that what they is very important for their analysis is the formative years of these young people were spent in a culturally more liberal society that openly allowed and even encouraged things ukrainian as opposed to Soviet. It wasn't as if there was a sort of uh, grudging appearance of these things, but there was an encouragement. So that that ness was there and suddenly the, uh, the brakes were taken off. In music, in film, in TV shows of high and low culture, books that had been banned in the 80s just seemed to be everywhere, they, whether they were formally published or what they called bootleg form, or uh, informal publications and so on. Something I learned meeting a young woman from this generation, I think, yeah, when I was in Ukraine uh, a couple of times in 2014, and uh, yeah, in the spring of 2014, people were trying to make money all sorts of ways. And there was a small outfit that was offering tours. They had, I don't know, a little kiosk or something or a table or there's somebody hanging about and said, okay, what time can you come? See you tomorrow. I had a bit of, a couple of us had a tour around Kiev with uh, this young woman, but I mentioned not uh, the history of Ukraine by Orest Subtelny, which was uh, is a big, thick history of Ukraine published in 1988. Imagine, before uh, the Subtelny, who was he died a few years ago, was a professor of Ukrainian history in University of Toronto. I mentioned this book to uh, this young woman, Marina, and she said we absolutely love the book. The book was published in Ukrainian as well as Russian. I read it in English, but she said, We were thirsting for any materials about Ukraine's history that were not Soviet books. This was the only existing history of Ukraine that was not written from the viewpoint of the Soviet line on what Ukraine's place was. It was an understanding, an autonomous understanding using Mikhail Khrushchevsky and so on, but a modern history from the earliest years to contemporary Ukraine. I just remember how passionately she said that her class in university, which was back then, was Back in the 1990s, I thought I'd offer you that aside, there was, in fact, even before independence, the book as the book mentions, um, on page 56, the 1989 language law was passed. There was a new constitution as well, but the 1989 language law made uh, Ukraine the primary language for primary and secondary instruction, so that all children who had from three to 10 years of schooling left had a pretty decent education. In Ukrainian, the 1996 constitution, which Kuchma championed, made Ukrainian the uh, sole uh, official state language, although it uh, also assured protection of Russian and other minority languages, big language. They just uh, underlined that bilingualism became really common practice and, and on display. We see it in Zelensky's political satire, where there is some switching back and forth, and there's often a bit of play about what language one is speaking. The series is virtually entirely in Ukrainian. In Russian, Ukrainian is only used pointedly or to make points from time to time. I was really surprised seeing it, looking at it carefully now this time to see how much it's in the, Ukrainian, in the Russian language, which raised no eye Whatsoever prior to this war, I just want to wind up with all oh, with a speech of Zelensky's uh, talking about they're talking about this generation saying that at least in formal settings in the 1990s, almost everyone switched to Ukrainian. In formal settings, for the independence generation, this became an easier thing than for the generations that had gone before them, who'd known forced Russification. Zelensky is saying in a speech in August in 2021, so before the full-scale invasion, this is why we are strong together, why we, so different from East and West, Ukrainian-speaking and Russian-speaking, must be one family, because Ukraine unites us, because we all tell it, you are my only one, because we all defend it. That's the section. There's a new section there, uh, Emergent Civic National Identity. Who's up for that? we we can we can fight over james i just wanted to mention a couple little things before we get to that there was i think lexicon i had heard that there was some discontent with the fact that serving the people so much of it was in russian i had heard that there had been complaints about that as before it was done they had apparently intimated that it was going to be more in russian in ukrainian there was a little bit of that there are some very funny scenes if, if there is one the guy from comes from the imf just to, to uh to see about giving ukraine a loan and the president is out of town it's very funny i won't give you the whole, go, go on too long but <laughs> it turns out that herr Adel weinsteiner has come to uh, to speak to them and the uh uh Holo over because Flunky, I, th- I think, was he supposed to be the foreign minister? I don't even remember. One of the Quartel 95 guys is very funny. He says, this Adol Weinsteiner says something about what language will speak. And he says, should we speak in English? This Flunky says, oh, no, I prefer Ukrainian. This guy hardly spoke Ukrainian. That's part of the ongoing joke there. <laughs> it turns out that Pan Adolf Weinsteiner had a Ukrainian mother and speaks totally fluent Ukrainian. It was a very funny send up of all of this. I enjoyed it. Now, okay, the next section, Emergent Civic National Identity. James, shall I take this or would you like to?
1: I'd be happy to take this one. This is really interesting because I think inherent in this is what does it mean to say you're a citizen before it was really Ukraine and then after, and what changed? This is pretty interesting. First, it really took on a civic quality that you're saying that you're definitely attached by nationality to this new independent state. One of the cores of it was, as the authors point out, that researchers found that shedding of Russianness, I'm imagining them shaking themselves off and watching the Russianness float to the ground. It was that was one of the important steps in this. And that was that's part of the new identity. We talked a little bit about the language already there. It is uh, it Didn't grow, this identity did not grow from shifts in the population alone. It really was people realizing, I think part of it, this is partly situational, I think, that they were going through these things and they had a chance to see how things worked. They were picking a side, I would say. They definitely are still interested in Europe and becoming a part of that and that culture and those values that go with it. From 1997, they had the first Ukraine summit, and then Ukraine set out to sign an agreement with EU by 2004, and then meet all of the EU membership requirements by 2011 at the latest. Eight EU, I'm sorry, eight EU Ukraine summits were held by July 2004. This is it. They're civic identity is one of an obligation to the state. It is one that it's defiant of Russia and its powers. And it's very much, I guess it's not too strong to say, in love with being in, being with Europe. They really like that idea. So these are some of the cores. Now, there's probably a lot more to be said about it, but that's what That's what I would leave it with. Maybe just to say that there's also this question about NATO, but that is a much more complicated thing. There you go.
0: Thank you, James. I just wanted to throw in one little thing. We've all heard about the Russification that went on, the forced Russification that went on for many years. I am more and more amazed at the extent of it, though. To this day, there is no decent Ukrainian-English-Ukrainian dictionary that is not significantly Russified. Um, I couldn't believe this when I was first learning Ukrainian. I went, actually got in touch with a professor of Ukrainian at Yuri Shevchuk at columbia university i said i can't believe this there's a, says no there really isn't one it's a very frustrating thing when you're trying to learn a language without a decent dictionary i, I find that i i have a i have several people who try to drag me through to learn this language this beautiful language but the number of times they oh no that that word don't use that word use this word because that word really is a russian word that people use i think ukrainians are working very hard at this point to uh, to try to uh, remove some of that from their language our commonalities there's about a 20 overlap overlap uh, vocabulary-wise between Russian and Ukrainian. That's not the stuff I'm talking about. I'm talking about actual Russian terminology and words that were pretty much forced on Ukraine, but even to the extent of the Russians getting their nose into the dictionaries and doing their best to what they called harmonize the languages. This really meant changing Ukrainian to fit more with Russian. They even went so far as to ban a couple of letters that are used in writing Ukrainian, which just goes, it just shows that the the genocidal intentions of Russia are nothing new. They've been trying to destroy Ukrainian language and culture for a long time now. As I said, I begin, I'm more and more, see the extent of it as I get more into the language, because it really is a fight that Ukrainians are still waging at this point.
3: Yes, What I found so interesting and in that, and I don't speak Ukrainian, I can speak some basic things, but I'm very bad with languages, although people try to teach me the geographical the difference in Ukraine. Like, when you talk with people from Lviv, they will speak a very clean Ukrainian. And like, every single Russian word, even if it comes to the pronunciation, it's basically I'm over dramatizing a little bit an insult to them. They are very proud of the fact that they speak this clean Ukrainian. I will call it this way. In Kiev, on the other hand, also central Ukraine, you have this interesting mixture that you have even people who speak Ukrainian will, as you say, like throw in Russian words from time to time in their normal vocabulary. It's like this, because I speak a little bit of Russian, like first I heard some Ukrainian speaking in a restaurant in Kiev, and then I went to my colleagues and was like, why are they using so many French slang? We are working on that. Then obviously on the East, many people who are speaking more Russian. There's, and I would be interested to hear your perspective on it, because there's this debate in Ukraine, especially between academics or students, and the Ukrainian army, as of how important is it that we all speak Ukrainian? Because there are people who, obviously, in the armed forces, you still have a lot of soldiers who speak Russian and communicate in Russian. Then you have this whole movement, or like a lot of people criticizing them openly for that, saying, how dare you speak the language of the invasion?" Invaders. Then the soldiers, on the other hand, and again, not all of them, just a group of them said, hey, we are here at the front lines defending our country. You are sitting in your university. Don't tell us how to be patriotic and how to be Ukrainian. I think that's a very interesting debate within this country. From an outside perspective, although I can't speak for Ukrainians, I think when it comes to nationality. The language is a secondary thing for the simple reason if we look at the constitution, the interim constitution, which was never passed, I think like 1930 or so. This constitution was, and pluripointed pointed in the Gates to Europe, pointed, wrote about this, was published in four languages. They had Ukrainian, Russian, Yiddish, and Polish, I believe. And he says this is the sign that under Ukrainian nationality, it's a very democratic, modern, humanistic society where one nationality can unite a lot of different cultures and identities. I feel this language debate is very interesting, and I still don't completely understand it.
0: That is very well put. The uh, You're saying that the, what makes a Ukrainian is not any more what language they speak. You're quite right, Vincent. I think it's it's a really, it's important, but a really complex debate. It's it's Ukrainians, of course. who I mean, from the outside, we cannot pretend to, to plumb the, the depths of it. I noticed that it's called the Surshyk, uh, my mnemonic is that it's like surgery, surgical joining <laughs> of Ukrainian and Russian. I notice myself. I also like you. I do speak Russian. To my shame, I don't speak Ukrainian. Lost it in childhood, but am trying to relearn. And frustrated with the interference of the Russian. I don't know well enough, and yet I know it. T- too well, so well that it interferes with my Ukrainian. It enables me when we're listening on the space to people, for example, the journalists, then we'll hear people speaking in Ukrainian. There are times I say, because when someone speaks Ukrainian, I do not understand, although I pretty well do when someone speaks Russian. Someone will be speaking Ukrainian on the space, and I say, What the hell? I practically understand this. The thing is that it's a surgic that's got so much Russian in it, and I do know some of the Ukrainian, so I am pretty well getting the sense of what's being said. Uh, of course, you can understand that, that we have, I'm in Canada, we're a bilingual country, but we have an office of the French language in Quebec that attempts to defend the language against the incursions of English, which is so powerful with Hollywood and so on, on the continent of North America that French is a language at risk. And I imagine that Ukrainians, I know Ukrainians feel this way, so you can understand good reasons for defending the language. I also have heard Ukrainian soldiers, just as you say, Vincent, sounding off about Instances in which someone has complained that a documentary would be done in uh, Russian saying that we're here and this is what we speak. And uh, as you say, we're defending the country. Another feeling is diaspora, which the older generations of diaspora are very much Western Ukrainian and get it's a bit off-putting to Ukrainians. Oh the diaspora with all their Western impositions on us. Of course the reason for that is that Western countries actively hunted Ukrainian settlers to, to settle their Western lands and push the indigenous people out. These are complex questions, and I think we really need to follow the lead that's given by Ukrainians across the country. It's really a tricky issue. That's true. A word's have never been spoken. Vincent, you're right about something. I, my two, uh, two, two, uh, all of my teachers of Ukrainian are from Lviv, from the Ukrainian Catholic University, and very much committed to pure Ukrainian. Like my conversation partners from Ternopil and is the same way. You're right about that. The issue with the it was the with the Azov battalion. This, I think, her name is Irina Faryon. She was a professor at, at Lviv Technical University, who sitting and she used to be a communist functionary before independence, which I thought was interesting. She really laid into Azov, in the middle of them being in Russian captivity, how terrible it was. They were not real Ukrainians because they spoke Russian. Meanwhile, these guys fought and died for Ukraine. She Lost her job, which it was just an outrageous thing to say, and you should know I came across. (laughs) Final ninety five is still being produced. Although President Zelensky obviously has nothing to do with it anymore, but they had a skit that I just it was. I didn't understand a lot of it. They didn't have subtitles, but I understood enough of it <laughs> where she is supposedly there's a, one of one of the guys is dressed in drag and is supposed to be this professor and she's sitting in the audience and they're trying to announce something and she keeps on jumping up and yelling at them because the word that they use isn't Ukrainian enough. It's hysterical. I think it shows up uh, some of how people are feeling about that, too. That's an aside. I, yes. I,
3: what's yeah. just one follow up real quick. Was this because I heard about the story where one professor did I don't know if this was this case. I think it was also the Catholic universities where one professor did this horrible remarks, like very critical remarks towards the armed forces. Then you had the students standing up, the Ukrainian students saying, what, what are you talking about? Let's about our heroes and criticize them and so forth. And then she or he lost his job.
0: I don't yeah, know that's that's, yeah, that's yeah, that's what I just. The only distinction is it was Ukrainian Technical University. I, I study Ukraine at Ukrainian Catholic University, which is I feel it's they've given me a lot. They're two different institutions. Yes, you're absolutely right. She said this outrageous thing, and there were student demonstrations supporting the the Azov Brigade, Azov whatever it is Azov, but and they were mostly. Pure Ukrainian speakers, that was a point that they made in the news The news coverage at the time. These were Ukrainian speakers, very committed to Ukrainian language, who, again, we're not willing, we're not going to get into the fake divide between Russian and Ukrainian speakers. It was a very, to me, a very positive thing, all in all. And I think the SBU got involved in investigating uh, this Irina Ferry, if that's her name, I think that's her name. Kiki, over to you.
4: Yes, I. I think one of one of um, well, not. I think one of um, Zelensky's uh, goals. I mean, he's got many, is to unite the West and the East to, together. But there were several or a few incidents where uh, Ukraine at the beginning of the war, the Ukrainians came from the, the east and they were speaking Russian or they had been located also. They felt really judged and put down because they were speaking Russian. They didn't speak Ukrainian, not because they didn't wish to, but it was taken away from them. It was a language when, when they grew up, they didn't, and it was a poor area too. That, so maybe in, in Kiev and Lviv, they had more access to universities and books and so on, or maybe they weren't as they weren't close to the Russian border, so they had less influence. And, and they were maybe able to keep their the Ukrainian language alive better or whatever happened there. In the East, as happened in all the Soviet countries, they were forced to learn Russian. They weren't in all the countries, but especially the East. I was reading about that they, were, they weren't allowed to hear Ukrainian music and radio and TV. Everything was in Russian. You didn't see any billboards, anything in Ukrainian. Everything was Russian. They weren't allowed to study. Ukrainian in their schools, it was all Russians. If you think of a child like Zelensky grew up speaking Russian, he didn't he learned Ukrainian a little bit later. You can't blame somebody, some people in that situation where through no fault of their own. Their heritage language was taken away from them or kept from them. This is the language that they grew up speaking. And so when the Ukrainians came toward the West, they felt, what's the point? We're all Ukrainians, but we're not being treated like Ukrainians, where we're being treated like outsiders like it's they were shocked and they were disappointed and what are we fighting for and i remember that was one of the one of the kind of the sad and because there weren't a lot of there wasn't a lot of movement from east to west it's a huge country i guess maybe in the states and even canada people don't necessarily travel across the country you stay in your own kind of area unless you have family to go to visit they didn't it's kind of like it's two different countries I'm not even talking about yeah. the ones that are under occupation, but the ones who are close, like Krivirida, where he's from. That's just an observation that he wants to combine and have them feel like Ukrainians as a country. That's one of his huge problems, because not only is he fighting a war, trying to have all the Ukrainians survive, but he's trying to fight corruption. He's trying to unite a country. There's so much uh, that one person He's undertaken to be. And last thing I wanted to mention, that was before we were talking about the corruption and taking money and so on. I remember reading also last year that um, Zelensky's father refused to join the Communist Party in those days under the Soviet occupation. If you were part of the Communist Party, you had better access to promotions and careers. And he refused to be part of it. That's one of the reasons that he found a job in Mongolia. He had a pretty good salary, but it was eight hours—no, eight days away by train. That's how Zelensky went to visit him over fifteen years. Is in Mongolia because he didn't join the party, the Communist Party. That maybe is part of where Zelensky also saw his, drew his inspiration for kind of not going in with the expected or the corruption that he's going to make his own stand. He had his father to look up to in that sense.
0: Thank you. Thanks. That is that that is part of the story. That he'll. actually, Zelensky, as a child, lived in 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 Mongolia for several years. And the story I had read is they moved back to Kyiv, Kri- Kri- and he was a professor there. When Zelensky was accepted to university there, that was when his father went back to Mongolia. A story that is told, and this may or may not be. This may be. Making it sound a little better than what you may have be closer to the truth, but the story they tell is that is that he wanted his father wanted to be sure that no one could think that Zelensky was getting special treatment because his father also taught there, which may have been part of it too, but yeah, it sounds he obviously comes from a family who wants to stand up for what's right. I think we're gonna stick around a little bit longer until our the next set of co-hosts come up. Shall we start of the we're up to the Zelensky origin story in page fifty nine, starting on page fifty nine. I think I'll just go through a little bit of this. Folks, we are obviously not gonna to get to the end of the chapter today, which is fine. This is a meaty chapter, so we will continue with chapter two next week and probably go on to part of chapter three. But we're not in a rush, right? <laughs> as far as Zelensky's or uh education. We had talked about this a couple of weeks ago, maybe in a different, not during the book club, but Zelensky, I think he was, when he was 16, he won an English language contest for English as a second language that he, that the scholarship he was going to be on a scholarship to study in Israel, but his father wouldn't allow it. He stayed in Ukraine. I must say, I, th- I remember, I wonder what would have happened if he had gone to Israel he might be the prime minister of israel now instead of ukraine it's just very interesting alternate history he certainly could have as a jew going into israel he would have gotten that citizenship if he wanted it right away he might have decided he wanted to stay there at that, that age who knows anyway i am i think we should be very thankful to for ukraine that that he stayed in ukraine because he was the leader that was needed at this point very much now one of the criticisms that that people have made of Zelensky's. Oh, he was a comedian. What does he know about any of this stuff? It turns out, once you go into his background, he had an interest in international relations and diplomacy from childhood. He, he studied in specialized English language school to prepare himself. He was looked at going to a couple of the top schools. One was in Moscow. I don't remember. The other one might have been in Kiev. He decided against it because one of the ways that you, one of the things you had to do to get in was pay bribes. That's how he ended up at Kryvyi Kri, uh, National University, where he studied economics and law. After during his time in school and afterwards, he uh, he got the comedy bug. And in 1994, he he focused primarily on comedy. As they say, again, thinking he's just a comedian, people miss the fact that, as they say, his comedy is full of biting satire and diagnoses of Ukraine's political problems, which Lexicon has, has talked about. That his training in economic state governance and law, all of these things were part of what set him up to... Perhaps be more likely to be successful as president than people were thinking at the time when he was running. The name of the troop we've mentioned a few times, Kvartal ninety five, which is a bastardization because Kvartal is Ukrainian or Russian, and ninety five is obviously English. But we'll do that. Is the name of the pretty unglamorous un- Soviet-era housing that he grew up in. Kvartal meaning block, block 95. The Soviets loved to give everything names. You went to school number two and whatever. This was block 95. It Part of this was it really hints at the Humor and social commentary that was part and parcel of Zelensky's uh, humor that it really resonated with ordinary people living in these unglamorous Soviet residential blocks. In 1999 to 2003, he and the guys, the uh, the the troupe, the comedy troupe, lived in Moscow, and were very popular throughout the the total post-Soviet space. In 2003. He he was offered a job as I believe chief their ex- high ex- executive in one of the in the, one of the Russian television networks. He refused that job offer and went back to to uh, to Kriviri with his friends, which people were very surprised at the time because it was a backwater compared to Moscow. But that's what he did. And he started the e- evening Fartal, which is the uh, the, uh, the variety show that he had ran for several years, which you can see on YouTube. The End of this of this section, they point out that criticisms of political opponents of Zelensky's involvement in a Soviet-style show, because it was very popular in Russia, they missed the whole idea of, of satire and humor as being part of association with dissidents. The, these live satirical comedy and sketch shows were actually branded as anti-Soviet during the Soviet Union. They It's simplistic to smear them with ties for Russia, even though as they say, his show may have done something to spread Russian culture influence and to some extent. The show's were were all completely in Russian. There were send-ups of Putin and and Medvedev and others that I just were really wicked and could not have put him in the good graces of the, uh, the higher ups in Russia.
1: James, would you like to add? If you said it, I was probably making noise at the time, but he did get his law degree. So he definitely had some preparation for this. And I'm I I, am, I can't resist the quotes in here. When I asked about why he isn't staying in Russia, he said, why I didn't like Moscow even though I lived and worked here for six years, because you can knock and yet the door will not be opened. It's not just to some neighbor. It's general. It's everything. It's about life. He's just really rejecting Moscow. He may have been happy to take their money, but he wasn't taking the rest of it. I just, I like that part very much. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) <laughs> Let's see. I don't think our, our the next set of posts is up yet. Shall we just go through the elections, polarization, and revolution? We may not get to the end of that. That's a long section, but we can start on that anyway. We're talking about the heads of the patronal networks who acquired or maintained power by getting people they trusted into key positions or buying promising candidates as the oligarchs in Servant of the People tried to do, and as was happening in real life, in Servant of the People, I'm thinking, you know, Kolomirsky, uh should have realized more than he did, because in Servant of the People, the three oligarchs are having this fight at one point, and they each think that the other one bought the candidate. Somehow, they actually ended up with somebody winning an election who, who none of them had sponsored. It was just very funny. It was, But this is clearly what where Zelensky was heading. Let's say I mentioned that already. Oh, at during this period in the uh, after independence was a very bad period for independent journalists. Uh, there were a number of uh, journalists who were murdered. Uh, the most famous of them is Yarhi Gunga- Gungadze, who was the uh, the editor in chief of the Ukrainska Pravda. Uh, there were definitely stories of other uh, journalists who disappeared. Who and uh, there's one who's. What was his name? Okay. Um, no, yeah, Chernobyl. He wasn't a journalist Yeah, He also was, he was, he was who, someone who ran against, uh, what's his name? Was it, was it uh, Kuchma? Or was it Kravchuk? I don't remember one of them. He had a, he had a bad accident. He died in an accident, in this accident. Who was it, James? I don't remember. Was it, was it Kuchma? It,
1: it was yeah, Kuchma Kuch- that, that okay. killed him, you
0: mean, or? Yeah, it was Kuchma was uh, Kuchma's driver recorded him giving some not too veiled instructions to somebody to do this. That's right. Yes, yes, that's right. Man, I was talking about a Martin Cruz Smith uh, novel, which takes place in uh, Chernobyl. And uh, which is uh, Martin Cruz Smith does uh, crime thrillers that take place while the the hero is a guy named Renko Arkady. He's a detective in Russia. Can you imagine? Starting Soviet times in this book, they're very. They, although a lot of it takes place in uh, Chernobyl and Kiev, they're very dismissive of Ukraine and Ukrainian culture. At some point, some thug or character says. How do you insult a Ukrainian? Their president uh, was caught on tape ordering a political death, and he's still in power. I went, saying Pretty awful. Although for Russians to be criticizing, it's like Lavrov criticizes Ukraine about supposedly one civilian got killed somewhere or something. It's These Russians have a lot of nerve criticizing anything about Ukraine at this point. Voting, ah, uh, okay. It's interesting. Things didn't progress, just getting better and better all the time, which is, I found interesting. The voting patterns from the 1994, 1999, 2004, the presidential elections showed an increasing relation between nationalities, nationality in voting, meaning nationality, meaning people who had, who were Russian speakers. They're using nationality in that sense here. They found that there was an increasing polarization as a result of deliberate strategies by the political elites to improve chances by polarizing the electorate along ethno-linguistic or regional lines. As I said, one during the election that Zelensky won, we saw that it looks as though Ukraine Ukrainians are finished with that at this point. It doesn't seem to be resonating anymore, but it certainly did for a long time. After 1999, and this was still the economy had been very bad. I have a friend who left Ukraine in 2000, and he told me a little bit about it. What it was like? That it was really terrible. You just could not. A lot of people just could not make ends meet altogether. Uh, after 99, there were there was there were there was vote buying by the per- patronal politics. The heads of the oligarchs who ran the parties pretty much. They had tons of money and ordinary ukrainians were really impoverished they bought votes with favors even even one at one point supplying caskets to certain voters because that was a trivial outlife for an oligarch there were people who really were worried that if they died they wouldn't be their family wouldn't be able to afford to bury them that was the situation it was in they call it, and oh and this i found very interesting and this fits with What we know about Kuchma, Kuchma actually encouraged corruption among his officials because once he had them on tape where he got caught, which is delicious, but he had officials around him. All of them, he had things on them, so he could blackmail them into behaving the way he wanted. All of this only lasted to a certain point. 2000 and two th- in 2001, started the protests with, of Ukraine without Kuchma. This were led by, by former dissidents and journalists. And this was the first big appearance of the independence generation coming out onto the streets and demanding change. This is where they really came into their own. So let me just go back over to James and Lexicon before I go any farther, though.
1: I think the other thing that's really important in this is just how big a deal the press was and (laughs) clearly repressed. it. It was... The case that they were, all these oligarchs were out to purchase what they could and use it. It wasn't so much news as directions on how to vote and how to think. That's a really poisonous thing. I think we're familiar with that kind of thing. It just was a huge role in what was going on. The the activist journalist at the time, you talked about Gun Gaza. He reported on the corruption around Kuchman his associates, and then he went missing, as you mentioned there was more than just him. There was a lot of activism, and this kind of press coverage really stirred that. Later on, which I don't think we'll get to tonight, but later on, we do know that this kind of thing, really the tracking the press and what was going on, played a major role in events later. It seems to me that, and I don't see it explicitly written in here, but those youth groups that were tracking the press later really probably learned a lot from this period, whether they saw it firsthand or whether they read about it. This was just the kind of thing where the people were already set up, remember, because they came from a repressive society. They were already very aware of the deception that was put on them, and that kind of thing could, could happen anywhere. They were ready. The youth were ready much later on. We'll get to that. Sorry. Yeah. Um,
0: the way they actually put it is, like in the years leading up to 2004, what's going to be the Orange Revolution, There's these years are a major renaissance of Ukrainian activism. Now, that's always been there. But they're saying what is new is that this time the independence generation assumed the driver's seat. Now it doesn't mean that they get into the driver's seat of Ukrainian government following the Ukrainian re- the uh, Orange Revolution. In fact, that becomes the frustration. They're in the driver's seat of the rebellion or what's just generally called Maidan, in the series servant of the people. They just it's translated in English as revolution, but it's in Russian and Ukrainian as Maidan. I'll stick a Maidan on you if you don't behave. The frustration becomes what we're going to see is that although they have a revolution, of, although they push this protest to the point that government is turned out, in fact, it's turned out And a deal is made with the other gang and the old guys are still in power. What we're going to take a look at is the movements behind the Orange Revolution in 2004 and these groups that formed Pura means time now. It's time you left. It's time you did something. The different groups. I don't know if you want to talk. I didn't really prepare, but go ahead. Oh, actually, I think James has dropped. We're, we're getting to the point where we're going to do some similar co-hosts, but I'm, I'm sorry I didn't catch the last thing you were talking about, Lexicon, so I'm going to pretend I didn't We, and just, no, we just got to the pura to these groups that came up, yellow pura, black pura and uh, yeah, time okay. for change, time to act. Right, certainly was. I one of the things I just wanted to mention. This is going back a little bit, but was, Zelensky returned to Ukraine in two thousand and three, and that was the point where he signed on with One Plus One, the, uh, which actually wasn't run by uh, by Holomoski at that point. He came in later, but it was th- at that point. One Plus One was basically getting directives from Kuchma about what, about how they should give, how they should, how they should report the news. Zelensky wasn't involved. He was the, I don't remember the exact title, but he was basically the director of the station, of the network. He was not directly involved in news in in 2004. When this massive electoral fraud had been planned by Kuchman Yanukovych to install Yanukovych, uh, at that point the journalists at One Plus One refused refused to keep on lying anymore, and it became became a big thing. And they were able to they the coverage changed a lot at that point. Uh, Two thousand and four, this is the Orange Revolution, the first revolution since uh, since independence. I don't know, do we call it a revolution? I guess we do. Ukrainian revolutions are not the kind of revolutions you get in other places. They were really, at least on the side of the demonstrators, were incredibly free of violence and acrimony and whatever. When we get to Euromaidan in 2014, the violence was from the government; it wasn't coming from the demonstrators. It shows, as I've mentioned before, Ukraine is a young country, but the uh, but the electorate shows a maturity you expect from a country that's been around a whole lot longer. Part of this, I think, is because while the Ukraine as a, as an independent country is young, the aspirations for independence and the civic society are much older. It's just interesting. Okay, so the lead-up to the Orange Revolution, what happened? Kuchman didn't run for re-election, but he decided that he was going under pressure, I think, from Putin, that he was just going to decide who to put in who to put in the as the next president, the anointed one was was uh, Yanukovych, of course. They, in the run up to the election, reversed the, the Euro Atlantic course, they ended pursuit of NATO, put the party of the regions in the driver's seat to control media and get the desired election result. The party of the regions was Yanukovych's party, bad guys. This resulted in massive. Opposition. Now, the authors cite four problems with this plan of railroading the country into accepting uh, accepting Yanukovych uh, without complaint. Was first of all, they forgot Kuchma was extraordinarily unpopular at this point. Nobody wanted him anymore. Uh, Yushenko, who is running against his prime minister, was very popular. The, and the political opponents built a united electoral coalition. They didn't, uh, the people who were, the people united against Kuchma, which he might not have expected, as As Lexicon just mentioned, the activists and youth social movements, they had somehow suspected what was coming, and they had planned for it for the last few years before the vote. As this was happening, Poroshenko who was the later uh, president? Left the party of the region, Yan- uh, Yanukovych's party, and his cha- his television channel, which he had he had inaugurated his own television channel, became became started to give positive coverage. To the people who were rebelling against Yanukovych's installation as the next president, in amongst that, many people will probably remember uh, Yushchenko was poisoned. He's to this day quite disfigured. He was poisoned by oxen. Didn't kill him though. At this and at this point, so Yushchenko was still there with, after their best attempts to kill him. When none of this other stuff worked, the uh, the yeah, Yanukovych and Kuchma uh, turned to blatant electoral fraud. Now this was something that even with all of the all of the uh, corruption and everything that Ukraine suffered from, people were shocked. This is not the elections that had always been free and fair to see this blatant theft of votes, It's like the vote those referenda they had in in Donetsk and Luhansk, the Russians lately were they would ballots were just taken out of the box or miscounted, or somebody would come in with an armful of, of pre marked ballots and stick them in the box. This is the kind of stuff that went on. This was a Huge shock to Ukrainians who, as I said, with that, with all of the corruption that they had to deal with, this was something that they had not seen before. Then, so this this. I will go, let's go to lexicon now. This is the lead up to the Orange Revolution. I think we're probably going to stop here, so that we can let I can get out of the way. If I to just make sure that I, it's like let's go. Lexicon. What all I could add. Let's. We know. In fact, it's terrific film that you're probably all familiar with. The is it not the winter that changed us? Is that winter of. Winter on Fire, is that the one? Oh, yeah, that does cover the Orange Revolution. It covers both Orange Revolution and then 2013-14 are in there. You get an appreciation. That movement had to be so strong... that it in fact convinced the Supreme Court in the end decided that it would be necessary that the Election Commission had not reported fully and fairly, I think, or I don't know how they worded it, but they agreed to a runoff which which happened in December and uh, Yushchenko did win. As the book says at the bottom page 71, the victory came at a price for the Orange Coalition. If you did look up the Ukrainian constitution You'll see that we have the 1996 constitution and we have the 2004 constitution. In fact, by the time the deal is signed, Yanukovych, sorry, uh, Yushenko has agreed to accept constitutional amendments. What they do is they take away a number of his powers, his right to appoint the, pre- the prime minister. He has no role in that any longer. You see a lot of this jockeying between the prime minister and the president in the "Servant of the People" series. Hale calls this a, a divided executive constitution. Executive powers, which we see in the U.S., are wielded by the president. In this case, there's a division in those powers between Parliament and the President. In fact, the President is rather hamstrung. Later on in 2014, there's a reversion to the 1996 Constitution. Yushchenko becomes President. Timoshenko is... uh, uh becomes the prime minister and uh, although this is a match made in hell as they battle it out over the next decade that we get on to in uh, chapter what else i don't recall what we say after the question was zelensky orange or blue <sighs> that was the question it's uh... This this is the, we're getting at the end of the chapter, Lexicon. I don't believe it. I really didn't think we were going to get there. This yeah, this was the question. His parents apparently had voted, had been on the blue side. They so had been against the the, uh, the revolution. They the, uh, as the the authors say, Zelensky was late to, uh, to public activism. The many of his generations, so there was skepticism about it. I think it's an open question still but i th- my feeling is he was prob- first of all he was out of the country for some of this, and he uh, he was very busy building his career i think i don't think there's a, a i don't think there is a there really is a we have a take on exactly where he was the is back up James what do you think about this
1: first apologies I thought there was somebody waiting for me to move, so I moved no anyway no this orange thing is pretty clearly this is of the people this is this is people power individuals. Blue isn't. I think that in a way, he can. you can say he's definitely for the people, but he has done really well in society and risen to the top, in fact. Does that mean he, he's not one of the people anymore? I don't think that's what it means. Does he have interests that perhaps are shared by people of more wealth than your average? I think that would be fair to say that he's got that kind of wealth. I am I'm still sticking with him being orange. I think he's there for the people. It is partly because of his background. He did not grow up royalty or anything like that. That's very true. Are you hearing a lot
0: of dings in the background, or is that just me? Oh, you were. Oh, my my bad. Oh, no, that's fine. Fine. I just was afraid that maybe something was going wrong with the speaker invite. We seem to be having trouble getting Christopher's speaker invite, but we'll get there eventually. Oh, he's there. Welcome, Christopher.
1: (laughs) Hi. Hello, all. I've been here. I've been listening. Lexicon, you're doing a fabulous job. Thank you very much for all your time. It's really been a pleasure to listen to you these last few weeks. Thank you.
0: Lexicon, we were discussing that in the back channel, by the way. That's not just Christopher. We all really appreciate the value added of you being here. I think at this point, Christopher is here. Um, uh, Nafo Dave is available, I think. Is that right? Do I have that right, Nafo Dave? He's due up. He's due up. Good. I'm going to say thank you. Thank you, Lexicon. Thank you, everybody. James, it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you, Christopher. Good night.